Hello, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode 38 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising and who wants ideas for how to raise more money, really enjoy their job and make a bigger difference even during the pandemic. And if you're a corporate fundraiser, or if corporate partnerships is one of the things you're responsible for, I think you're going to find today's episode really interesting, especially at this stage in the COVID crisis. Because I'm about to share an interview I carried out recently with the always inspiring Mr. Ben Swart. Ben is the very experienced head of new business for corporate fundraising at the NSPCC. And he currently performs this role two days a week. And separately, he works with me at Brightspot as a fundraising coach and trainer and he's been my co-trainer on the Corporate Mastery Programme for the last six years. If you're a long-standing listener to the podcast, you may remember episode 19, which is still one of our most popular episodes ever, in which Ben gives tips and encouragement to help you pick up the phone to talk to your supporters during the pandemic. In today's episode, I particularly wanted to explore the difference between traditional partnerships, including the Charity of the Year model, and strategic corporate partnerships. There is a role for both models, but Ben and I have noticed that for many charities, especially smaller and medium-sized ones, now more than ever, the time is right to proactively seek strategic partnerships. So we talk about the factors we believe are contributing to this, and we explore several tactics that can help you proactively secure valuable strategic partnerships of your own. By the way, at the time of recording, there are just two places left for the Corporate Mastery Programme we are due to start in the autumn of 2020, So if you like the ideas that Ben and I talk about and you want support to help implement this way of working, do get in touch via brightspotfundraising.co.uk. For now, though, get ready to enjoy Ben's ideas on winning strategic corporate partnerships. This episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast is brought to you by Bright Spot Mastery Programmes. So if you need to increase income in corporate partnerships or major donor and trust fundraising, these programmes will help. As well as the advanced strategies you learn on the training days, you receive one-to-one coaching to help you put those powerful techniques into practice. To find out more about the Corporate Mastery and Major Gifts Mastery programmes, head over to brightspotfundraising.co.uk. My first question, Ben, is... um, if there are broadly two ways of working, uh, you can uh, work in kind of a charity of the year type way where you're applying for stuff where the company has in its CSR policy said they're going to go out and help certain good causes, or there's a strategic partnership way of working. Do you want to start off by telling me what those two mean to you and what the real differences are? Yeah, absolutely, Rob. So um, for, for me, the the, the biggest distinction, I, I think, is that when you are thinking about strategic partnerships, it is about you being more pre- proactive about looking at your charity, where you need to be to help your beneficiaries, the sorts of audiences that are attracted to you and your projects and your campaigns, and then you taking the time and energy to say, who are the companies that would be interested in or match those things I've uncovered. It's very much about being proactive yourself. Um, the charity of the year world, which is the way that people have been giving to charity for years and years and years, and is a crucial way, is I feel a little bit more about the company saying and the company taking control to say, we have a tender process every few years. Um, and so we would like to ask 
a group of charities, please come and apply. And then we probably together with our staff will pick out of you which one gets to get our money, which is very likely to be raised from fundraising events. And then we'll write you a check for a philanthropic or a very specific project. And so um, often the charity of the year world is one where you may well join a queue. I know that the last time that Morrison's, for instance, looked for a charity partnership, I think over 250 charities applied for one position. Um, so the charity of the year world is very much lots of people applying and hoping that they get this one pot. The strategic one is looking at yourselves about the things that you can do, uh, where you need to be, and then deliberately asking out of all of the companies who are the ones that we should be going for. Great. And so clearly I see why it's so tempting. And actually lots of good gets done for lots of great causes and has done for the last 30 years through the charity of the year model. So there are clear advantages to it, especially if you are the kind of charity that has the kind of brand and resources um, and skill to go and win these things. Clearly there's a massive upside and I see why it's so tempting that, oh, here we are obeying the rules. It's in their policy. They, they're offering this value, this money. I see why that, um, if you th don't think too deeply about it, that seems like the most tempting way to approach it. And yet, um, I think probably many of our viewers and listeners are wholly aware that in reality, for the majority of charities, there are massive downsides to jumping yeah. in and putting all your eggs in the basket of, of this application route. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the, even though uh, before the pandemic, so before the pandemic hit, I think about 70 to 80% of all of the gifts that were given to charities were given to them through this charity of the year type in staff engagement route. That year on year is falling quite rapidly um, and since the pandemic's hit the, the, the types of companies that could either raise that sort of money or it, or have the space capacity to give and think about partnerships in that way has has shrunk and actually what we've noticed before the pandemic we were noticing this strategic partnerships were really increasing and it and it makes sense um, you know I, I links Africa <laughs> talks to uh, young men, like Link speaks to lots of young men by links. I remember that at Christmas. And um, it makes sense for them to have a partnership with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, if they're trying to work with and support young men. It doesn't make sense for Links Africa to ask their 2,000 employees to vote on a charity partner that they may or may not want to have. So that, like, it's a strategic decision. And so uh, since the pandemic has hit, um, more and more organizations are seeing that actually we need to be as strategic with this decision for our charity partner as we are with lots of other things too. So one of the key things is it's just a numbers game. I think um, uh, um, that brilliant fundraiser called Alex Wooding who yes. spoke on my Bright Spot Members Club and at the, of, uh, the Brexit Club that we run. She said, why would you, you join this shark tank where however bright and hardworking you are as a fundraiser and as a charity, you're competing with the, just the sheer scale of numbers. Uh, you know, it's like playing the lottery. Why would you do that? Yeah. However good you are. Um, and and uh, so, so just the numbers are against you, but also especially for many charities in terms of uh, how big you are or what, you know, how cuddly and attractive your brand is likely to be, 
to the employees who often end up voting on these things. Again, even if you pitch brilliantly, the majority of the time you then get put forward to a staff vote. So the quality yeah. of your pitch doesn't matter. It just comes back to a popularity contest again. So, I mean, the, the um, it's just a soul destroying thing to, to work really hard and well and still lose if you're trying to play the wrong game. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and especially as those sorts of partnerships have pound signs all over them, right? Let's not forget that uh, it, it's precisely because they're a partnership that, talk, that has thousands of staff raising money for it, that it gets onto the internet, that it tells you that there's this amount of money, that your directors see it, that your CEO sees it, and they see another charity partner with it, and they say, why can't you just apply for that? And there's lots of pressure there. Um, and what that means is that year after year, the pipelines that many corporate fundraisers are working on are the same pipeline that they've been working on for, for, the, for, for years, the pipeline that they inherited. I think that Alex at that breakfast session put it really well. She'd worked for a cancer charity, a dementia charity, a youth organization, really different charities with nuanced audiences and problems. And she said the one thing they all had in common was their corporate pipeline, because everyone was going for this same buck, this shark tank. And so what we have to do, back to the right at the beginning, is say, stop that. <laughs> Who are we? Who are we as an organization? Where do we need to be? Which audiences are most moved by us? Um, which, what, what are the biggest hurdles, biggest challenges to our beneficiaries? And then if I was starting from scratch and saying which companies could most help me with these sorts of problems, or want to speak to the sort of audience that most cares about my problem, who would those companies be? Um, and that's a very different sort of conversation to please let me join your queue of 50 other charities to hopefully win your spot for one year to, to get money. So yeah, I'm making the same point again, but for me, strategic partnerships now more than ever are, are crucial. Sometimes we, the fundraiser, thought what we needed was money. Actually, we need either money and or at its best, a company that can help you further your mission. Yeah, absolutely. And what's fascinating about these is that uh, the more I've studied them, the more I've delivered them myself and the more I've worked with other fundraisers is they can help us as charities to make a huge impact. We have a partnership with O2 because children aren't safe online all the time. And one of the reasons is parents, when they give them their first phone, don't know what to do um, to keep them safe. Uh, and before the partnership, we were reaching about 50,000 parents. And because of the reach of someone like O2, we're now reaching four, four million. Um, I've heard of other organizations, missing people have now reached people, millions more people than they would have done with their partnership with Royal Mail, um, Calm and Links, et cetera, et cetera. For the charity side, because you're not saying, uh, I have this fully formed project, company, please give me some money to fund it. You're saying, I have this problem, <laughs> this problem in society, this problem for my beneficiary. Together, how would we solve it if we were working together? Because you're doing that, you can make huge advances on solving the problem. But then from the, from the company's side, they're noticing that the campaigns they're doing with charities are more likely to be viewed online, <laughs> more likely to be viewed for longer, more likely to be shared. Uh, fast forward six months and it has effects on buying habits, on loyalty, on trusts. In many cases, products with cause-related marketing attached to them, products with, that are part of this campaign, they sell more. Um, Make-A-Wish and Fairy, the time of the year when they sell a bottle of Fairy where 25 pence goes to Make-A-Wish, 
um, Foundation at Christmas, someone from the agency that works selling fairy said to me that that is their most profitable time of the year, Rob, um, and that these sorts of partnerships are, helped fairy to negotiate with supermarkets, get more shelf space. It helped fairy to have an emotional connection <laughs> to their audience. Um, it helped them to differentiate it. So it's not just chemicals and water. It's something completely else. And it's at a time of year when they're able to take more of a, you know, giving a charity money is actually less they would spend than if they were putting it on offer or something. So what we, not what we were noticing before the pandemic hit is that left, right and centre smart companies were using their charity partnerships um, as, as their marketing campaigns, as their chance to engage their audiences and their, and their staff. Um, since the pandemic, and I know we were talking about this, every advert now is look at the good I am doing. Whether that is literally as closely related to coronavirus as possible, I'm now helping the NHS or I'm helping key workers, through to look at the charity work I've been doing or the partnerships that I have. Um, now more than ever, not only are companies wanting to tell their audience about uh, the work they're doing with charities, but the decisions to shift the way a company is working, work with charities, change supply chains, support beneficiaries, those decisions aren't just being made by a small team in the corporate social responsibility department. Chief executives, marketing directors, operations directors are standing back and saying, if we are to make a better impact on the world, what do we need to do as a business from scratch? They're not saying, if for one month of the year we wanted to look quite good and engage our staff, what would that look like? Uh, let's give that project to the CSR team. They're saying, if the purpose of our business was to change, to make the, the world better, how might we do that? Um, and so, uh, th that is, uh, for me, that's a huge marker to say charities, let, let's do the same. Yes, and there's this extra angle, I think, not only do I sense more companies are really clear of the commercial value to not just be doing good, but also telling the world that they are, they are doing yeah. good. They, 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 they step up, they, 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 you know, the Specsavers advert is so clearly saying, look at us, we've, I mean, well done to them. They have, it, it seems to me, done some, some great things helping vulnerable people during the pandemic. But crucially, I think it's interesting that they've given all of their advertising space to wanting to tell their target market that that is what they have been doing. And yes. none of that messaging is about product or some, some special offer. So it's clear, I think the reason we've got a special opportunity now is the companies seem to be hungrier than ever to, to want to be doing good and be seen to be good. But I think there's this extra angle from the charity's point of view because of the way almost every charity I know has had to change its overall strategy in the last few months yeah. because it had to work remotely or because, you know, um, it's, it's means of delivering the education or the scholarships or whatever have had to change under lockdown. Uh, on a sixpence, most charities have done amazingly well to work differently. But I think now as they relook at this point in 2020, what is their strategy going to be for helping as many of their beneficiaries as well as they can? I think there are opportunities to um, make use of the expertise and the resources 
of the corporate yep. sector, which the charity itself need not have. Could you talk about that idea briefly, please? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I, I used to say, and it's that two thirds of my job was influencing people internally, not externally. Uh, and that what I really meant by that was most of it was trying to work with our projects to ask ourselves and the organization to ask ourselves the question, not how can I get this project funded? But if, like we said earlier, if we're solving the problem together with a company, what might it look like? From, um, and that is really hard to do um, when a project is working really well and the model works and it has worked for 30 years and it's getting changed a little bit, but not a huge way. But as of March this year, that model was flipped upside down and changed completely. And one thing I've noticed is that we don't always like being honest and transparent with people who don't work for our charities. We don't like saying when we're struggling or when something is tricky or when we're not reaching enough beneficiaries or when there is a challenge that we're struggling to hit. But on the 20th of March this year, nobody would have said to you, would have had a go at you when the model meant didn't work anymore. It meant that organizations and people and the people delivering our projects were 100% transparent. They could say, help me, because if I'm really gonna help my beneficiary, I need to change the model. We used to give them therapy face to face. That can't happen anymore. None of my staff can come into the office. We don't even have enough laptops. We, they, none of them know how to use their tablets. The young people we help don't have tablets. Like, gosh, for the first time ever, these models needed to be changed. And so the question, what isn't, can I have money to fund my project? The question is, well, I need money to fund my project, but I'm not entirely sure what my project needs to be for the next three months. Can I get help there as well? And that crucially gives us a chance to say, I think we can, like, tell me more about that problem. Tell me more about how we're struggling to reach our beneficiary or what we now think is a, chain, a challenge due to coronavirus. And then who are the companies that could in some way give us advice or support or pro bono or tech and funding too, but those other things. And what I found is that previously it may have been trickier to try out and pilot and get a company in quickly to support us. Now more than ever, actually things are happening really quickly. But the speed with which change happened when coronavirus hit, um, We've, we've tried out five or six different projects, fundraisers, campaigns, and ways of, of helping in the space of a month. That would have normally been nine months worth of work. Um, and I'm seeing that everywhere. I think there's a LinkedIn post that's doing the rounds that says, what has transformed your, your organization's innovation quicker? Your CEO, your chief technical officer, or COVID-19? And I think for me, it's that premise that should shift our mindset to say, actually, now more than ever is an opportunity for us to go on a peer-to-peer -peer level with these companies and say, together we can do something to solve this problem, uh, which coronavirus has created for our charity and projects. Yes, and actually, it doesn't even need to be uh, problems only to do with service delivery or how you organise yeah. your research. Um, I loved the example from someone uh, from a youth, a fairly small youth charity in our corporate mastery program just recently, uh, sharing with the group that, that he, he, he picked up the phone and called a, a design agency and uh, um, they did the web, web design and social media. And um, he articulated to, to them that one of his big problems in the pandemic is that there isn't, you know, now all of the marketplace is an online digital marketplace. And our website's not very good and we have no social yeah. media management 
at all, presence at all. And, and he articulated that problem to them. They cared. And at that point in the pandemic, they've given him £30,000 worth of pro bono help improving their website so they can help more young people and be more attractive uh, to donors. And then crucially, giving them an online presence with, with social media uh, content management. So it's not only just right kind of what you thought your mission was. It's yeah. all elements of what has just become harder for charities now. There are yeah. some companies who are entirely uninterested and, and don't care, but there are many companies who A, care about your cause and B, know that their target market cares. Yeah. And if, yeah. if you give them the chance to enjoy helping you, you make the world a better place and you let them have partnership status and they can tell their market that they've done a good thing, then that I can see why that um, uh, online company stepped up and has done a great thing for he to help that youth charity. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know, Rob, you were telling me about another person on the courses who's um, worked for a charity that plants trees and they've got a good partnership with a gardening uh, app. And it, it, you're absolutely right. And the interesting thing is that I was having my breakfast this morning. Companies have been doing this for years. If you have a look at your cereal boxes, they're aware that the sort of person who buys children's cereal is the sort of person who has a family. They're desperate for things to do with their kids. They know their audience. So they are having, Kellogg's have strategic partnerships with Madame Two Swords because they want to take their kids there. That is a different audience to the sort of um, Kellogg's people who buy Red Berry. If you buy Kellogg's Red Berry, you're probably uh, trying to be healthier. Uh, maybe the Swartz are trying to be healthier. And, um, uh, and if you're trying to be healthier, then you are more into exercise. So look, Kellogg's have a strategic partnership with Reebok. Um, and what's fascinating is Reebok aren't trying to partner with the bit of Kellogg's that's selling to children or that's looking for fun, engaging days out. Um, Reebok is trying to partner with a bit of Kellogg's that speaks to healthy people, fitness and people who run. Um, and back to right at the beginning, by doing charity of the year or, or going for everyone or just the richest companies, you're ignoring the fact that there will be companies out there who the things you talk about, the projects you have, the audience who care about you, the way people think about your work, you'll have, there'll be companies out there that that is who they want to meet. They're currently spending money thinking through who can we partner with, what can we do, what campaigns can we do to reach that sort of person. And so um, the, the, of, of all of this, I guess I, I'm hoping we're sending the clues to pause and change the way you're looking at your pipeline. Fantastic. So if I were to pull out some of the tactics uh, that we teach on the Corporate Mastery Programme that help you work more this way and increase your chances yeah. of succeeding in this area. Number one is just to have the, the philosophy and the understanding of why this way is worth having at all. But then uh, secondly, uh, you, you can't work this way if you're, sent, you know, you're trying to aim for 120 companies. Focus is power. On the programme, we teach a dream 10. You decide your 10 where it absolutely makes sense for all of the reasons for both parties that you've been saying so far in this interview. And then thirdly, there are actually various different ways you can get that uh, first conversation. Yeah. One of the ways, one of the five ways we teach on day one of Corporate Mastery is the ambassador strategy. Who do we know who might know someone at one of these companies? And they, you ask them to open the door for you to get the first meeting. Uh, so it's the philosophy. There's choosing the dream 10 there's ambassador strategy yeah. that's where you make the make the phone calls um and then when you get there 
it's uh, being willing to have a conversation to to listen to both sides and work yeah. out because you can't possibly guess it all right first time as to why they would want to and actually all of the everything that they could bring to us so it's rather than remotely send a proposal knowing that in so much of our content we talk about the val key thing is to aim for for is conversations with the right people rather yeah. than aim for a done deal in a proposal or ask for some money so that the fourth step i i would say is the value of getting the conversations and pursuing not just one conversation but then a follow-up conversation and then in partnership negotiating finding ways to help each other get what both parties want um i think this is too big a subject which is why we teach a, <laughs> there's so much depth there that we have a whole uh, six-month corporate partnerships mastery program on it but just for the listeners today those are four key principles of ways of working that help you uh, increase your ability to win strategic partnerships just before we finish today's interview ben is there any last top line idea that you think might we could bear in mind for if we're actually you know your team have been working this way for years but just one of those many other things that you think in addition to those four can help someone move in this direction yeah i think crucially with lots of these things um to begin with from from the from the points we've just said well there's some brilliant tactics and you're right on the mastery course we help someone say like tomorrow what can i do to get those meetings but the, the main thing is shifting the radar so that you're, once you're aware of who you're going after, your brain begins to find more and more ways to get that cup of coffee with them than you ever thought possible. I was talking to someone recently who realized that a whole part of their charity that spends all day very transactionally talking to businesses actually was talking to five of her top 10. And that whilst they were ending each contract and each conversation with, okay, thanks, and then never talking to them again, because that's part of their job, like they, they weren't the relationship building side, it enabled her to see, oh, I could get it in there. And another one I spoke to recently who said, there's this company been on my Dream 10, they've got in touch, but the thing that they want, all they want is a team day for 50 people. And we don't do team days and we don't do this sort of thing. And so I'm going to email them and say, no, but I'd love it. I was like, well, like, if the game is test drives, if the game is getting conversations with them, you begin to notice that there's little nuggets and bright spots everywhere that you can turn into a call or a Zoom chat or a coffee. Um, oh, I've got, you want to talk about a team day? I'd love to talk to you. Let's put a time in to have a Zoom coffee. Oh, I noticed that you've done a piece of work with us. My job is to understand the impact that that had on you. Can I get a cup of coffee with you? It was really interesting that when you change the focus away from I must win the partnership to how do I get this person to, to have just have a chat with me? How do I help them have a chat with me? Um, you realize that part of it is proactivity, but lots of it is you're aware of suddenly turning the things that are coming your way from bland emails and one-way conversations into phone calls and Zoom chats. Fantastic. So, Ben, thank you so much for all these ideas, tips and examples. And to you, the listener, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Well, I hope this discussion was helpful. As I say, if you're curious about going deeper and securing training and coaching to help you implement these ideas, at the time of publishing this episode, there are just a couple of places left for our Autumn Corporate Mastery Programme. And you can find out more if you go to the services page of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. And to see a summary of what we talked about today and the full transcript, 
You can find that on the blog and podcast page of our website. If you enjoyed the show, remember to hit subscribe today. And if you think this session would help your wider team or your friends in other charities, I'd be ever so grateful if you could share it on so that these ideas help as many charities as possible to get through this crisis. To get in touch or share this episode on social media, Ben and I are both on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Ben is at Ben Swart and I am at Woods underscore Rob. We'd love to hear what you think. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate the time and effort it takes to keep learning when you've got so many other distractions on your plate and I hope it gave you some ideas and encouragement. Until the next time, stay safe and thank you for all your efforts to make a positive difference through your fundraising.